Hi, and welcome to the Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast. I'm Anthony Lance, physiotherapist, co-founder of Southern Suburbs Physiotherapy Centre, and your host for today. For a long time now, we've been writing and blogging about a whole range of topics and people that we come across in our day-to-day life as physios at SSPC. And whilst you can still gain access to all our articles and blogs and look back through the archives via our SSPC website, we know that it's simpler, easier and more convenient to bring the information direct to your ears. Day in and day out as physios, we are trying our best to optimise human performance. And that's not always just in a sporting performance sense, it's often life performance that's even more important. Just being able to get back to your absolute best despite some back pain, an arthritic knee joint or a sore and stiff shoulder. But anyway, it doesn't matter what problem is we're dealing with or who the person is in front of us. Our goal is always to help our physio clients perform at their optimal level regardless of whatever limitation or hurdle might be put in front of them. And a big part of performing optimally is to prevent injury or further injury and recover well from whatever activity you may be undertaking. One of the problems in today's day and age is the abundance of information available. And as brilliant as Dr. Google can be, it can be equally as dangerous if you've got the wrong source of information. Sometimes things are presented so well in electronic mediums and they do sound so perfect, but when you dive deep into reality, a lot of that stuff out there just isn't quite correct. So, via our podcast, we're going to bring you all the information we can from our physiotherapy world. We'll break it into easy-to-understand chunks of information and we'll educate you on how to perform at your best, prevent injury and recover well. Welcome to the first athlete feature where we plan to introduce you to many of the great athletes and people we work with every day. We're going to try and find out what makes people tick, what motivates them, how they've trained, what difficulties they've overcome and basically what's got them to where they are now. And we'll do this not just for motivation but for education because sometimes the best way to get better is to learn from others' experiences. And today's guest, well, I've been lucky enough to work for 30 years as a physio and I've come across many great inspiring people and athletes, but I don't think any ever inspired me more than our first guest athlete. What this person has done in her sporting life and in fact her professional life is truly incredible and we'll talk about her physio career as we go, but it's her athletic career that just astounds me. From the very humble beginnings of just going for a jog, she progressed to triathlons and then went back to running and the distances just kept getting longer and longer to the stage where she is now. An Australian representative in international ultra-distance running events over 24 hours with some amazing distances completed under sometimes extremely gruelling conditions. She's quite possibly the most mentally tough person I've ever met. Welcome to the podcast, Donna Urquhart. Thanks, Anthony, and thanks for inviting me along to the podcast today. It's um, fantastic to be involved. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's been a while in the uh, planning to try and get you to come along. When your average run is about six hours, um, it's hard to fit a podcast in. 
Yeah, it can be with uh, with being out running, but also juggling work and family commitments too. So. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been it's been a massive four or five years for you. Yeah, it's kind of it's hard to believe. Uh, just uh, I guess coming back from being in France last year, uh, it's hard to believe that that sort of actually eventuated. Yeah. Uh, given I sort of, it, it's really nice to actually look back and see where you started and, uh, and to think back on the journey and, and where you've come from, um, particularly in the last five years. But even, you know, some people asked me when I actually started running and uh, to think back to when I first started running when I was at university studying yeah. physiotherapy and, uh, yeah, and I just – I literally started running to get away from the desk and to get a break from, yeah, okay. from study. So Interesting. So we'll get into that in a sec, but if you – if we had have sat you down four or five years ago, would you be sitting here now saying, yes, I've achieved every goal I set four or five years ago, or have you just gone with the flow and things have changed? Like is, is where you are now the result of – meticulous planning or you just did one thing and tried another and certainly not meticulous planning. Right. Yep. <laughs> I'd like to say that, but no, it's very much been an exploration. Uh you know, in I've now been in twenty four hour racing for a few years and that was that really eventuated from I guess curiosity. Yeah, I, okay. uh, I heard about a friend was doing a 24-hour race at Coburg back in 2015, and I remember her telling me that she was going to do this 24-hour race around a 400-meter track at Coburg Athletics Track, and yeah. I was like, "Wow, why would you do nice. that?" And uh, so, and I, I didn't think anything more of it, and it was just the following year in 2016 when I was looking at the race calendar and I saw. Uh, an event in Sydney a 24 hour and it was just really curiosity that I I thought wonder what that's like to do right most people wouldn't go on a 24 hour run just out of curiosity no I I guess not but uh, I've I've always and I think there's a bit of a in human nature to wonder um, what our limits are absolutely. And, and to just experience things that are out there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's go back. You touched on it before and I want to touch a little bit on your physio life as well because that's quite relevant particularly with some of the research you've done. But you literally started running as a, what, 19, 20-year-old during the physio course. Yes, I did. As I said, I uh, used running to get away from the desk and get some fresh air. Um, particularly during exam time where you're sort of left to study for days in and and days out. And uh, so I didn't come up through little athletics or cross country. I played netball and tennis. Yep. And, yeah, started uh, really running around a five-kilometre block when I was studying physiotherapy and and then from there that led on to doing triathlon. Yeah, okay. Anyway, let's go back to your running. So you started to basically get away from the study. I think, and correct me with if I'm wrong, but your first big event was Hawaii Ironman. Is that right? Uh, so I, I overall I did five Ironman triathlon yep. races. Uh, so what led you from your basic desk 
getting away from the desk running to Ironman? I, I like the idea of doing a triathlon. And I met a couple of people who were doing sprint distance triathlon. Yep. And so I thought, look, I'm going to go and give this a bit of a shot. And I still remember going down to Lilydale Lake and doing a, I think it was about a 250 metre swim, a 10k bike and a 2k run. So not even sprint distance, a a mini distance. And uh, I remember doing it and walking away, wheeling my bike to the car just super chuffed and exhilarated by the the whole experience. Yeah, the achievement. Yeah, and then from there I thought, look, it'd be really good to join a club. So I joined a triathlon group and I still remember the first day I went down and there was a bunch of us standing around, perhaps about 20 athletes and and the coach divided people into two groups and I was put in one group and I remember whispering to someone and saying, who are those people in the other group? Yeah, right. And uh, they were like, oh, they're the Ironmen. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> and uh, they said, oh, they're the people that do Ironman. They do a 3.8K swim. They do a 180-kilometre bike and then a 42.2K run. Yeah, right. And I just remember thinking, what? That's nuts. Yeah. And, uh, but it's, it's amazing when you get into a club environment or you're training with people that are doing things like that you realize that um, they're normal like you and you see what they're doing to train for that and you start to think oh maybe I could do that training and then if I do that training perhaps then I can do that event so okay from there it was just a progression from Sprint distance to Ironman distance and then uh, I guess the elusive Hawaii was dangled. And tell us about like Hawaii is considered the pinnacle of Ironman events. Yeah, so Hawaii uh, Ironman is the world championships in Ironman triathlon and it's run on uh, the big island Kona and in quite, you know, considerable conditions very hot yep uh you ride through the lava fields yeah wow as i said before 3.8k swim 180k bike and 42k run yep and just how tough was it it was particularly tough because of well look it's tough on any year on any day um but i found it particularly tough in that i didn't have a good lead up uh about eight weeks out from the event, uh, I fractured a bone in my arm and yeah, ended okay. up in a sling for six weeks. Oh, wow. So no swimming leading into an Ironman? Uh, well, look, I I broke my arm. I ended up in Sandringham Hospital, had a X-ray. I had a radial head fracture, but it was undisplaced. So I was able to stay in a sling for six weeks. And look, I was pretty devastated at the time. Yep. But after that had passed and I started to pick up the pieces uh, I thought, look, my, my goal now is to get to the start line and I won't worry about what happens after that. Um, just let's first get to the start line. And so I actually did get in the pool. Right, okay. Um, but there was kicking with my arm pretty much strapped across my side oh. and some one arm yeah, right, swimming yeah. with the other arm. Uh, and I problem solved a lot of ways to try and train. So when everyone was out riding to Portsea and back, I would be sitting in front of the television on a wheel trainer. Um, and there was no Netflix back then. Yeah, yeah, right. It was watching, uh, (laughs) um, you know, 
Oprah. Oprah or cartoons or yep. music video, I think, was on on a Saturday morning. So, and look, I'd spend four hours on on the wind trainer and yeah. go loopy at the same time. Yeah, okay, because I think it's it's sort of become a, a little bit of a theme, unfortunately, and we'll get on to it a few of the recent events where the ideal preparation has had a real hiccup with injury. And I think it's one of the things I really admire with you is that ability to shut out the negativity or or the the difficulty that's ahead of you you seem to have a real ability to put that aside and just focus on what you can do rather than what you can't yeah look i i try to do that there's certainly times where i um end up like a mess on the floor and uh there's tears and what have you but uh i think I give myself a bit of time to to do that and to to be disappointed and upset, but then staying in that place doesn't achieve anything. And yeah. so I've I guess I also role modelled my parents who are very proactive and have sort of taught me that uh, it's good to have an action plan and go forth with that. So I, I really try and then focus on well, what can I do to make this the best of the situation yeah. that I'm in. Yeah, and as I said, there's been some some events where there's been the, not the ideal lead up, but certainly some some great results. But let's again stick to Hawaii for the minute, and and obviously you broke your arm, which wasn't good, and I think your knee was a little bit dodgy in the lead up, so there was a bit of that as well. How tough was the event now with everything you've done in running? Like you look back on the Ironman and just think, wow, that's just, you know, the equal of any running I've done because people, obviously it is, it's it's an amazing endurance event. Oh, absolutely. Look, I I think you can't compare. You can't compare um, an Ironman and and the World Championships in Hawaii with the World Championships in ultra running in France. I think they're two different um, beasts yep. and uh, you know I've appreciated and enjoyed them and and be stretched by both of them um, equally yeah okay mm. and so what led you from there why, why didn't you say I've done the world champs once and I'm going to do it again but you instead did someone plant a seed in your mind about running only and going long long distances so what what led you from from a three discipline sport into just running well i i actually from triathlon was intrigued about uh adventure racing so i then started to go off-road so i learned how to ride a mountain bike yep and i started to take up paddling and i did a mixture of events from um, Marysville to Melbourne, which was an event that Rapid Ascent okay. um, set up, which you could do as an individual or a team. Uh, and then I also, one of the other highlights was doing uh, GeoQuest 48-hour adventure right. race where you uh, participate in a team of four. So I participated twice, um, once with Reese, my okay. husband on board as well. And uh, so it's usually three males and a female. Right, yeah. And uh, you navigate through a course which involves paddling mountain biking uh and trail running and so i I did that for several years but then in terms of transitioning into running um we had our son max in 2012 and uh, i quickly realized that having a baby and trying to train (laughs) for three disciplines was just not going to work so 
it just was a natural flow on from there. It was easy to throw on my shoes and um, initially just walk out the door and go for a walk and get some fresh air. And that turned into a jog, which then started, I just started to do some running again. Yeah, okay. And that fits in. um, And I think probably the easiest thing maybe to do now is just to go through year by year some of the events and talk about them. And, And 2013 seems to be where your biggest stuff begun. So I've got the North Face 50 kilometre Blue Mountains run in Sydney, which was your first ultra, I believe. Yep. And you were placed seventh female, um, which is pretty good for your first ultra. And um, you also had the Marysville 50k run that year where you were the first female. Does one stick out more than the other, your first one or the one where you came first? Look, I think they were so different and I think they're special for each for their own reasons. The the North Face one was special because it was about going away as a family interstate and just, uh, I guess, getting back into doing some events and um, bringing our son along with us and just having a go. And I realised very quickly for that event that I didn't prepare very well because it was extremely hilly being in the Blue Mountains and there was a stack of stairs. So... Um, I couldn't walk for a week after right. that one. Okay. Um, but Marysville was special in terms of, uh, I guess, in having taken on board the importance of looking at the event sure. and looking at what's involved in preparing well for the event. I then was able to put those things in place and have a go okay. at that. So very early then it sounds like you learnt that you – don't just plan to run 50Ks, but you plan to run 50Ks according to the terrain and the temperature and like it's not just as simple as running 50Ks, is it? Not at all, not at all. And one 50K event uh, can be completely different to another 50-kilometre event and I think that's one thing that I've learnt over the last five years or so is that uh, you really need to do your research and I think often speaking to people is that have done the event is um, just like gold because they can often tell you the ins and outs that you can't read on a website. Yeah, sure. And so, yeah, preparing in terms of uh, the temperature it'll be, the kind of terrain, what shoes you need to wear, what support there'll be, um, how you're going to fuel yourself, you know, are there aid stations or do you need to carry it on you? Sure. Uh, there's a ton of things to look into. What makes somebody go from 50Ks to thinking I can run 100? Because that was your next phase. You just doubled up. Yeah, look, I think, again, it, it was a bit of a natural progression. You you enter into a world of ultra running yep. and you have a go at, at a 50K and, and you just see people around you doing – because that North Face – 50 that I did there was a North Face 100 there so you see people you see people out there finishing that 100k event and uh, they come in all shapes and sizes and and you see people and uh, the achievement that they've experienced and again there's that curiosity I, I feel like there's a bit of a cycle where you see a particular distance or concept of running or whatever it might be in it might be in music or business you see some sort of concept or theme and it sparks um something inside you and you get 
that sort of rush of excitement and so that's sort of the first phase and you're curious about it and how would it be if yep. you did that and then the sort of once you've committed to that there's sort of that next phase of well if I give that a go how do I best need to do it and there's that phase two is kind of I sort of see it as the challenge phase where you yep. try and draw on all the things you need to do to make it happen and then the third phase where you you sort of make it happen and it does happen that sort of um, exhilaration and reward that you receive from, yeah, sure. from doing that. So in answer to your question, I guess it was just, uh, again, that curiosity of what what is it like? You know, I couldn't imagine after finishing a 50K how you could double that. Yeah. Um, but then I guess the curiosity beats the the feeling at the end of a 50K. Yeah, absolutely. And so that, that first 100K run was Duncan's run? That's right. Yeah, which yes. is an ultra marathon on the trails of Gippsland's State Forest. Just under 14 hours, third female. Did you get to 50Ks in and think, what the hell am I doing? Why have I chosen to go another 50Ks? Absolutely. Yeah, right. And how did you get through that? Kilometre by kilometre? Yeah, look, I. it was interesting because I experienced over that first 50K a gradual tiring and fatigue setting in and yep. soreness in the legs and that kind of escalates over uh, over the 50 to 60k but what i found which was quite interesting was that after that initial period it didn't actually get any worse okay um that soreness stayed and sure going up or down you felt it more but uh i always thought that it would continue to escalate yeah. But it sort of plateaued out and, uh, yeah, so I just, can, I guess, continued. And, and what was really nice was it was a looping course. So okay. I got to see support crew sure. and fuel up and then yep. head out again. Yep. Um, but the last 5Ks, things must have escalated physically, surely. Well, what was frustrating for that event for me and and one thing I'd like to mention perhaps a little bit later is about the problem-solving aspect. But sure. pretty much every ultra that I sort of go into, um, and I'm not alone, is that there are problems. There are things that come up yep. that you need to navigate around. Yep. And you're saying like things that you c- couldn't have prepared for, like completely unexpected problems. Yeah, yeah. generally, generally. Yeah. And, and pretty much every race that I've done... I could list for you, yeah. for each of them, what sort of, okay. uh, you know, issue that I've had to overcome. Yeah. And I'm not alone. Uh, and I sure. think it's the nature of endurance sport. Let's go back. So you've done 2013. You've done extraordinarily well, going from 50s to 100s. 2014 came and, and when I listed the events, I was thinking, wow, it must have been almost like a training year for you because you did... Um, the roller coaster, forty-three kilometer run, where you were first female. The Canberra Bush, sixty-three kilometer ultra, where you were equal first female. The Mount Macedon, thirty k, where you were second female. I assume you hadn't got out of gear at thirty k's; it was too short for you. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the Marysville, fifty k, third female. The hundred kilometer surf coast ultra where you were the first female in your age category now i suppose when i look back at these these races ranged from just over three hours in the 30k to to almost 11 in the surf coast 100 
that's a massive variation in a year. Look, I think from my experience, people do it in all different ways yep. to do 100K as yep. their, their first. Uh, I guess my progression um, probably on paper looks quite significant, but I think taking into account my endurance background and sure. the fact that I've been in triathlon, adventure racing and then ultra running yep. and I've been in endurance running for, yeah. or endurance sports for a number of years, I think that aerobic base and I think the adaption of your body happens over a long period of time. And so I think my previous history in triathlon and adventure racing allowed me to perhaps progress a little quicker. Yeah, okay. Mm. And so if the if the ranges of distances weren't that unusual for, for an ultra runner, what about just the amount of races? Because the average marathoner would do two maybe three marathons a year and you've done whatever it was five or six endurance events in a year that that's a lot isn't it yeah look again it varies i find that uh you know at the moment i can do two significant ultras and i'm yep. talking you know doing 160 plus kilometers yep. in an event i think probably two of those a year is is the cap for me yep. and but is that it, time or is that physical or is that like what the the cap what puts the cap on to a year both both physical and mental yeah yeah and and sometimes i find that you don't always realize that um having come off being in France last year in November, um, I had a bit of a, a niggling injury continuing afterwards and I wanted to keep training and felt that I was ready to do that. But I ended up having a break and I actually think that was a good thing because I feel so much more fresh both yeah. physically and mentally now. And at the time I didn't realise that. I was just eager to keep going. Yeah. So in 2015 you took on an amazing challenge and, and amongst everything you've done, which is all really quite spectacular, this was probably the most inspirational thing that you've done in my eyes because of the the, the greater cause. And, and we're sort of bypassing the fact you did a couple of Oxfam 100K trail walks um, over these years as well. But the Trail Beyond um, was a concept started by you and um, the slogan was for Australian women, the toughest four ultramarathons in the Asia-Pacific region in four months. Can you tell us a bit about how that all came up and how it progressed and what it meant to you? Yeah, so uh, 2015 uh, was about really the Trail Beyond project and we aimed as four women to go and do four ultra marathons in four different countries um, in a period of four months. Yeah. And that really came out of uh, my wanting as a runner to, to be able to give back and to have some sort of impact um, with my running. Sure. Uh, I feel like, you know, running can be uh, – somewhat selfish to, to a yep. certain extent and but it's also a great vehicle to be able to have impact and so getting together with the other four ladies that was that were involved um, we decided to do those four ultra marathons but at the same time document 
our story sure. of how we went about those marathons and what happened during that time with the sort of overarching concept of of showing other people this is what we've done and perhaps empowering other women that they potentially could have a go at whatever they would like to do not necessarily in running but in any aspect of their life that they would like to pursue yeah and were the other were all four of you ultra distance runners when the concept came about uh, not necessarily, no. Mm. Um, Carolyn Jones and Anne Ziogos, they were both uh, ultra runners and uh, being involved in events. Um, Olga Poporowska, uh, she had done some endurance events sure. but has, wasn't specifically um, bedded in the ultra running community. Yep. And so that, I presume, like knowing the Oxfam teams of four where, where people uh, mostly walk it but some run – there's interesting dynamics in in team like four different people. You, you know that's a that's a different uh, level of complexity in itself. So it mustn't have obviously only been uh, the four marathons and the four countries and the four months, but just the the complexities of having four very different people must have. Did, did that provide any or present any hurdles at any stage or, or any difficulties that you had to address as a team? Yeah, it was interesting because we not only had four women, but we also had a producer on board, yeah. another female. Because you did a documentary. We've, We've done a documentary. Yeah. So uh, so we had um, Cassie along as our producer and uh, so there was five of us, but then there was also a bigger crew because we often had family members along okay. to help with filming um, and so it at times could be quite a team of people and I guess uh, navigating everybody's wants and uh, and five women who yep. were fairly, you know, all reasonably strong-minded. It was certainly, um, you know, a juggle to make sure that, you know, everyone's wants were provided for. And it was interesting what we, we found was the running was tough and it certainly extended us and but it was you know exciting and some of the countries we experienced were just amazing like we ran through Cambodia and did a stage race through Cambodia and and that was long was that one of them was really long yeah so one of the stages was up to 70 kilometers and we were running in um, you know 35 degree heat and very high humidity and running down dirt roads through villages and we'd have cows coming out yeah and wow because that was um, about 220ks all up 220 kilometer yeah. stage race that's right but so the running was tough it was exhilarating it was a fantastic experience but what really we weren't prepared for was just life combined into that experience yep. so uh, we all found it very challenging to every two to three weeks be jetting off somewhere else yeah. while we were juggling work uh families and uh so that was challenging yeah and i think you know i i'm sure that's what you must be so proud of because i think for me in following that quite closely and and this actually comes from your website explanation that you know these women are not elite they are everyday women they're aged between 30 and 60 they're working to support themselves and their children they're dealing with daily life as you said so I think for me as an observer it was you know wow with with a goal 
and an aim and and support um you can like it's a it's amazing what you can achieve that that's what i took out of of the trail beyond Mm. and that's certainly the message that we were trying to get across is that we're not full-time elite professional Mm. runners um we're the people that live next door and um while we've done a bit of running we certainly not taken on something of that level and so we you know we we really wanted to sort of show people that there's possibilities where you are passionate about something and you're prepared to put in the work yeah absolutely but look let's move on to 2016 and and that's where really your major ultras came in so um you started going from the 100k runs and you sort of said before that you know you're around people and things evolve so I won't ask you the question of why you went to 24-hour runs but if we start in 2016 you did um, coast to Kosciuszko which is 240k's uh, goes from the beach of Eden to the top of Mount Kosciuszko um, 35 hours um, you were fourth female Um if my memory serves me correct, and this is another thing that has caused me to go a little bit grey since I've known you, is that you just threw this on me about five or six weeks before you were due to do it. Like, um, uh, as much as you might be the meticulous planner sometimes, you just sort of throw a little snide comment in, I'm doing this event thinking I haven't heard. And um, was that one of them where you just decided last minute I'll... Well, that's because I found out last minute. Right. Okay. That's your excuse. (laughs) No, look, uh, I actually applied for this event. So you have to apply and you have to have a resume and and have certain events. Yep. Um, And it's hard to get into. They only select 50 people to compete. And so I put in my application and I didn't get a spot. Right. Okay. And so I was training at a quite a significant level and then when that didn't come through I didn't have any plans so I dropped down my mileage and I just cruised along and ran socially okay and then uh it's about three or four weeks out I got the call from the race director to say look do you think uh you'd like to come along and do coaster coffee and are you prepared (laughs) and uh yeah, I put my hand up right. and that's probably why I came to you then yeah, and right. said, look, um, I'm doing Costa Cozzi. Yep, yep. And so you're training, like normally if you were going to do an ultra like that, you would be training for months and months and, and you literally came into this on, let's say, three to four weeks of targeted training. Yeah, if that, I think I went out and I did because I wanted to allow a couple of weeks of downtime before the yep. event. Um, I I think I went out and did two weekends where I, you know, did significant mileage in both of those weekends. But yeah, normally I would have a good four month build up into an event like that. So do you know that that our first podcast was on load management (laughs) and you've just um, you've just done everything wrong? Well, I guess when you've only got two weeks, yep. then uh, yeah, everything yep. else goes out the window. And so if we move on now to the Sri Chinmoy 24-hour, yes. is that the way you pronounce it? That's right. Excellent. Yes. This is the one that still makes me shake my head um, because I think this was one of the side comments too. You told me you're doing a 24-hour run um, and I sort of said, yep, that's great. And then you mentioned it's it's around an athletics track and... 
I'm picturing like the Olympic marathon where you just run in for the last couple of laps, but no, this is 24 hours um, of just doing laps of a 400-meter track. Um, crazy. Yeah, look, a lot of people say, why would you run around a 400-meter track? That's boring mm. and that just must do your head in. But there's actually a lot of positives about running around a 400-meter right. track. Look, the atmosphere at some of those events is amazing. You've always got your support crew, um, food, fluid, encouragement, motivation, toilets within yeah. 400 meters, yep. and um, the real there's a real community and support that builds at that track. And so you'll have people come in the morning and they'll set up their tents around the track for me. Yeah. So there's a real community that develops around that. And trail running's fantastic. Don't don't get me wrong, and road running, but that track environment is just a whole hub of um, support, encouragement, excitement. It's, yeah. it's great. That's amazing. And again, that's where, where I think you are exceptional is that, you know, for me, if I mean, I don't drive that far in a week, let alone run it in 24 hours, but um, I'd be thinking of every negative and, and you've just come out with all the all the positives which is why you're doing what you're doing and and i'm not i suppose so but tell me with your training did you and speaking about the specificity of training did you do a lot of training just jogging laps yeah i certainly do like i one thing i do leading into an event and is to train as if it's the race as closely as i can okay so for training for a 24-hour event around a 400 meter track i will have a number four to six key sessions where I will do that around a track okay. and I will try and simulate the obviously the surface and the track. I will try to simulate my pace. Uh, in these 24-hour events, um, I've learned to run walk. Okay. And so I'll practice running for, if it's 15 minutes, running for 15 minutes, walk for two, run yep. for 15, walk for two. I'll practice my nutrition. Um, I'll try and make it as close to sure. the situation or the race that I'll be in. Yeah, and so leading in uh, to a 24-hour track race, your biggest training track run would be how many hours about six hours yeah. so about 60k yeah okay because you know like like that event alone you did you did uh, touch under 193ks um first female fourth overall um 481 and a quarter laps and i presume that quarter is important to add in after you've done 481 Absolutely. laps yep i didn't want to leave that one out um, and I still actually have a little bit of a laugh when you talk about all the positives and, and obviously you find a lot of positives in that event, but you did say to me at one stage that one of the highlights of that is changing direction. So at yeah. a certain point, you just, everyone's happy that you're going the other way. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously that's important because you're running around, um, around a track and you want to change the, yeah. the direction so that the you know the impact and the forces on the the system are different but um i i liken it to if you've ever walked down the street and you're looking at the houses and uh and you see various things and then you turn around and walk back the other way yeah, and right. how it looks different when you and you pick up different things and it's okay. exactly the same um when you turn around on a track and yeah, run the other okay. way yeah so. it's interesting and it comes back to um again it's it's amazing how sometimes 
things people say stick in your mind. And Rick Osler, who I know you see as well for your your foot and runner problems, who's who's Mm. one of the podiatrists at SSPC, said to me one time that the body hates repetitive load. And as you say, even from that point of view, is it just doing... And we know from an injury point of view of, you know, even just having the same single pair of shoes and doing the same run on the same surface is, is not good for the body. So even over 24 hours, uh, changing direction um, from a body's pers- perspective is actually really important as well. Um, and I think that's why it's also important. Not everyone does it, but the run-walk ratio during yeah. a 24-hour event is yep. really important yep. for that as well. And Just I've, changing the stress. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And for my first 24 hour, I knew nothing about running yeah. 24 hour. I just rocked up. I didn't have a coach yeah, and wow. I didn't know what I was in for. I'd only run a hundred kilometers and I didn't know whether my body was just going to collapse after yep. that hundred K or not. And, uh, and so I ran for the first, um, hundred kilometers yeah, right. and, uh, then obviously paid the price in the the latter half but now through speaking to people who are experienced I've got a coach um, Andy Dubois and also Martin Fryer has uh, assisted me a lot as well they're both very experienced ultra runners and coaches is to take on that run walk ratio and it does um, break up that repetitive loading yeah okay and again here's I mean I suppose little tips and you said it early that until you've done these things you're really I mean, you have to do one or two to know how to do them well, don't you? Like these little things you pick up that you just, you have to do an event to to learn. Absolutely. And in 2019, you did the same event again and and went even better. So uh, you were first female, uh, second overall, 212 Ks, uh, 530 laps. Um, it's, It's just amazing really um but what i want to do is actually talk to you briefly about i think it was your next 24-hour run and that was the coburg 24-hour ultra in 2017 because mm-hmm. um, that was the first race that i came out and actually watched mm-hmm. you and mm-hmm. i'll never forget it because it was torrential rain i mean i almost didn't make it out to coburg the rain was that heavy it was freezing and I, I remember I sat in my car for about 20 minutes thinking I'm not getting out in this rain and then I went to the coffee shop and got a hot chocolate and eventually wandered over to Reese, who was who, who's been an amazing part of obviously both personal and running life but he was just out there um, doing what he needed to do but um, uh, you know I think wow I, I still remember you running in that rain I mean what are your thoughts of, of we talk about things that have hit you in races that you've had to deal with, with that one, was it the rain? Was it the weather? I, I do remember that rain and I do remember you appearing once the rain stopped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, look, I remember the track being virtually flooded. Yeah, and it, it was. was like yeah. we were, um, you know, swimming through puddles. It was, was really quite deep. Um, but that had been quite a tumultuous 24 hours in that uh, the night, before the race, we went to bed and uh, we were woken up during the night and, and Max, our son, was literally by my bed and uh, and kind of half whispering at me. And um, I looked up and Reese had woken as well and he jumped out of bed and I was still sort of coming to when we realised that he was having difficulty breathing. Oh, wow. 
And so we quickly flew to Sandy Hospital and we we spent the night virtually in, in ED. Yes, gosh. Um, until uh, uh, sort of I managed to go home at about 3 a.m. and grab a couple of nights sleep wow. and then head out to the track to, to start running. So in a way, I think that set me up for that race in that I – it was just a race. And yeah, right. look, I was focused on – I, I was really focused on trying to get that uh, 200 kilometres. But at the same time, I think that experience put things in perspective for me. And so the rain really didn't yeah. matter so much yeah. at that stage. Yeah. And isn't it – like I, it's what I find amazing again is just the ability – and obviously this was out of your hands – but the ability to turn, you know, a, a hurdle into an opportunity or a, or, or a negative into a positive and, and almost in ultras, as you're saying, you you have to be able to do that to succeed because you're literally everyone's going to face something at some time. You just mm. got to be able to turn it around. Mm. But I think also what I find really interesting about ultras is it's almost life compressed into a 24 yeah. hour period yeah. Yeah. because that's what happens yeah. in life. Yeah. There's there's ups and downs, there's problems to solve. So in a way, I feel quite lucky that I get to do that on a 400-metre track and develop those skills which I can then carry over into life yeah. and, and vice versa. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think it uh, – yeah, I think the, the skills and the mental strategies that you learn um, – in ultra running can be transferred to life for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you've, you've, I was thinking, you know, certainly from what I saw that, that the rain must've been one of the toughest uh, environmental experience you've, you've had, but can you tell me, and we haven't quite covered the last couple of events yet, but if you think back is the toughest thing you've had to deal with has it been a, a terrain has it been an elevation has it been an environmental condition like is if there's one thing that you could plan to not have in an ultra what what would it be like what's the toughest i think for me it's heat yeah right yeah yeah so i really experienced heat when i went and did the Asia Championships, uh, the 24-hour championships in Taiwan. Yep. And we ended up with a day that was uh, 32 degrees in the shade. Yeah, wow. Um, so, you know, one can only imagine what it was like on the 400-metre track that we were on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what we experienced on that track, I was part of the Australian team then. And uh, I still remember several incidents where I really had to – take all my might to compose myself. So at one point I was running along and one of our um, male Australian team members kind of uh, had a dizzy spell and kind of fell across the track in front of me and his head ended up going between two stainless steel bars because there was a a, a fencing barrier barrier there. And they virtually had to pry, like Reese was right there at the time and ran over, but had to pry his head out between the bars. Um, and then one of our other female team members ended up, you know, the support crew couldn't yep. find her and found her collapsed behind oh, one of gosh. the tents. And then I remember in the middle of the night, you know, ambulances, you know, arriving at the track. And, you know, obviously your thoughts go to those people and you, you concerned about how they are and it's very easy, you know, 
I sort of took the approach, okay, you know, my thoughts are with those people, but you've also got to not let that affect Absolutely. you because I started to worry about, well, how am I, how am I feeling and am I going to collapse? And yep. um, so, yeah, I felt that the heat and that situation was something that, that was the hardest thing to deal with, I think. Yeah, and okay, and other than shutting out what's happening around you, did you did you change anything else during, the, like did you hydrate more? Did you, like was there anything else that you sort of did just on the go, like being in that moment with that heat and watching people around you to help you cope? I think the one thing, one piece of advice that has been gold for me that, that Andy, my coach, gave me was when it's hot uh, and you're starting to feel the heat or almost before you start to feel that, you need to address it then. You yep. need to address it early. Um, and I've taken on that advice ever since. And in Albi in France just last year, we didn't have a particularly screaming hot day. It was mid-20s. But even after the first few hours, just within myself, I started to feel warm. So I asked Reese if I could have one of the ice bandanas. And right. it's a bandana that's sort of sewed up except for one opening. You pop okay. ice in yep. there and you can wrap it okay. around and tie it around your neck. And so I was straight away on to keeping right. my my uh, body temperature down. Yep. Um, and I think that's been one of the most important things yeah. um, to act early and to keep your temperature down. Yeah, okay. And I suppose, again, you know, in our physio world, trying to – and part of the idea of the podcast in a way is, is, is really trying to educate people to be proactive because we tend to, with a lot of things, be reactive. You know, the pain's come and I'll deal with it or, you know, the problem's come and I'll deal with it. But being able to be proactive is, is, is pretty important. Mm, absolutely yep so with um with so we've been through briefly your your taiwan so the asia oceana championships where you did 100 just under 195 k's eighth female third in the age category um then you went to lb in france this year actually um and did just a fraction under 207 kilometers um first australian ninth in your age category it's been quite an amazing journey for someone who started out with 50k runs to end up where you are an australian representative doing 24-hour track runs yeah looking back uh when I was doing 50s or not even doing 50s, I wouldn't have imagined that I would have uh, be, would be where I am now. And, and I guess it, it sort of shows that if you just chip away what can evolve, because I don't see myself as a particularly talented runner. I mean, yeah. back in my triathlon days, um, I actually used to dread uh, run squad yeah, and right. uh, try and avoid it where possible uh, because I would really struggle in those run sessions and as much as I loved running I didn't feel I was particularly good at it and with triathlon I'd uh, be in a race and I would be quite strong on the bike and get off in a reasonable position and then have people run past me yeah. so uh, yeah I guess I think it shows that if you're passionate about something and you're prepared to put the hard work in, then you don't know what where it could lead you or what could happen. Let's try and find out just a little bit more. I mean, that's all the events you've done, and and I think that's been really important just to establish the the really the enormity of what you've done. And and as you say, without being you know an an, an elite runner forever and a day, like this is something that you've done really quite recently. And and, and those events and the results really are, are quite staggering. But 
lots of different uh, things have got you there and, and, and that's what I want to get into now. And I want to start off with your, with your training and just look at um, if you're leading into a 24-hour event uh, and given the perfect uh, preparation, what does your peak training week look like? How many runs? How long? What do you do in a peak week? So my peak week would probably I would hit about 160 kilometers in the week yep and the key session in that week would be a weekend run of of about six hours or 60 kilometers okay and that would be aiming to simulate race conditions Uh, the rest of the week would be uh, usually for me, Mondays and Fridays are sort of quieter days where I might go to the gym and do some strength work. And depending on um, what the week is and how I'm feeling and um, what my fatigue levels are, I may or may not run to the gym, which is half an hour away for those days. Tuesdays and Thursdays will be more a speed and interval session. And if I'm leading into a 24-hour track, I'll do those on the track. Sure. And then Wednesday will be an hour, an hour and a half run. And then Sunday will be somewhere between an hour and a half and two hours, but with not going out and sort of plodding away, but perhaps having a specific plan. So I might up the pace for the last half an hour of the two-hour run on the Sunday um, to, to ensure that I'm, um, I'm getting to some higher um, yep. paces in, in that week. Yeah, sure. So it's literally seven days a week you're doing something but I think again we've got a lot smarter in our industry as physios is realizing that you know it's not just the running it's it's the extra stuff it's the recovery which we haven't really spoken about at all but but strength is now playing a massive part for runners of of all degrees and if we look into what's a quite a controversial topic right at the moment and that was our previous podcast on footwear and particularly the shoes that Elliot Kipchoge wore recently um what what do you wear what are your shoes of choice I wish I could wear Elliot's. <laughs> yeah, well, they might not be allowed to for much longer in race conditions anyway. Yeah. Uh, so I've shifted with my shoes more recently. Uh, I was wearing Brooks uh, Launch and Levitate yep. uh, runners, but I've recently gone into um, Hockers uh, mainly because I've had uh, a, a foot injury, yep. a forefoot injury and the extra cushioning and the rocker. Um, sole in that shoe has been you know extremely beneficial for that injury yeah absolutely so do you use them solely or like do you have a few pairs of those do you train in a in in a different shoe as well so how do you how do you put your footwear into your training program well i try and circulate a number of different shoes yep uh so at the moment it's been a little bit different because um i've just been trying to nip my foot injury in the bud and, and, you know, get rid of that. So I've been leaning more to a particular type of shoe. Um, so previously I didn't have as much cushioning and I would I would run in a shoe that was, um, you know, had less of a midsole. Sure. Uh, but now at the moment I'm tending to rotate a couple of shoes that have quite a, a level of cushioning. Okay. Um, and... I've actually just speaking, been speaking to Rick Osler, the podiatrist yep. at uh, Southern Suburbs, and uh, 
he's also re- recommended a, a further shoe with Asics that also has okay. the cushioning and the, the rocker sole. Yeah, right. So do you track roughly how many Ks each shoe has done and turn them over by like kilometres or, or time or do you just look at the sole and think they're done and swap? So you, you must surely have some... I, I am a way. scientist, but unfortunately I'm right. not a scientist on my shoes. Yeah, right. Uh, look, I do it a bit by feel and also yep. looking at the shoe. Um, I find oh, it'd be nice to have enough hours in the day to track the number of kilometres on on my shoe. But usually, I find I can tell by by the feel and also looking at the sole um, and just the compression um, aspect around the shoe as well. With the track races again, it's like thinking that you do over five hundred laps. Like, do you get to five laps and think? Gosh, I've got 495 to go. Or do you? How do you set your little in-race goals to not because the the board's in front of you every lap, isn't it? Of what you've done, so it must mm. be hard not to think. Gosh, it's five laps. It's six. It's it, it's sixty. And and knowing that you've got over 500, do do you set a strategy to to look or to not look or to 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 set lap goals? That's a really good question because I have fallen into that trap before. I've certainly got into 24-hour races and often you can tick through the first 10 hours or so and you're okay. Everyone's yep. fresh and then it's a gradual decline but it's it's at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning when it's dark and, you know, some of the people have gone away and it's just really the support crew that are there and there's not a lot happening and that's where you can really start to lose it and you're sort of in no man's land. You've kind of maybe done 100 or 120 or whatever it is, but there's still so many hours yeah. or kilometres to go and you can feel really lost in that that space. Yep. And so I've found that spreadsheet. And so what I'll do is I'll, you know, it might be 2 o'clock in the morning and I'll come up to my crew and say, okay, for this hour, what have we got down? And it might be, okay, your goal is eight kilometres in right. this hour. Okay. And so I'll break that down and it'll just be about focusing on that eight kilometres. And I might even break it down within that and run for 15, walk for two and, and so on. Yeah. So it's almost like, um, and it's something that you brought to my attention, which is a which is a statement by Martin Luther King, which says you don't have to see the whole story staircase you just take the first step so it must be a little bit of that that you use like don't don't look at the bigger picture too much but just break it down into step by step stage by stage yeah and I think that applies to a whole lot of things I mean I've certainly made that mistake before where you've shunned away from doing something because you can't see how it's going to play out and it's that fear of the unknown or fear of failure that you won't take those first few steps. And I I really love that quote because I think it sort of shows you that you just, you need to take a few steps even though you can't see what's beyond. And what about, um, what about the last hour? How, How tough is the last hour? You're tired, your body must be starting to let you down mentally you you're fatigued you you've got laps in mind that you need to do like it 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 must be torture the last hour is fantastic oh right okay (laughs) no look i actually revel in the last hour and i when i'm got six hours to go i'll actually tell myself i've got five hours to go yeah right because i'll say the last hour it just flies and you know you're home 
Um, you can you can count down the minutes, um, and you know often a lot of people gather at the track and everyone starts to get excited and yep. there's a building of emotion in that last hour. So I love the last hour okay. and uh, yeah, it's fantastic. I I really enjoy it. We should touch a little bit on family, which has been an enormous part of where you're at at the moment and, and, and knowing your family reasonably well. And Reese is your support crew and little Maxie who's done his first fun run recently as well. But I think all of them, and, and I want to speak a little bit about Reese and the, and the support that he gives race day, but, but family's been a big part of your journey. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Mum and Dad have been an amazing support. They've come to um, all my major events and unfortunately less so recently because they've been supporting from home and looking yeah. after Max because yeah. as much as we'd like to take him along, the logistics are a little bit difficult. Yeah. But um, they've been a tremendous support and always encouraged me to to pursue running or, or whatever I've I've taken on. Yeah, Reese has been amazing support to me. I I certainly um, feel a lot of comfort and um, security around yep. having him at the track, and it, he kind of knows me. He knows um, I only need to look at him, and he knows yeah, what right. I'm feeling and. You know, just recently in France at around the four-hour mark, I wasn't feeling that great and that's really early yeah. to be not feeling great. And then at the six-hour mark, I wasn't feeling any better and, and really that race was about um, persisting and we problem-solved and experimented for hours and he was there every 10 minutes. So I was coming around every 10 minutes yeah. for that that loop and he was there all the time trying to problem solve and work out what we could do to just make things better yeah it must be so so comforting and certainly in the event i saw it's like uh, you look back and you're just amazed at what the support crew does and and you sort of see a couple of other people that don't seem to have the same support and think gosh it must be just so much harder in these events if you haven't got that that brilliant Mm. support crew so what's his i mean this is this is a hard question and there is no one absolute priority but in the support crew let's look at reese would would his number one thing be nutrition like just getting your food your cup of tea is that the obviously i said there's a lot of things he would do but would that be the number one thing for a support crew to get right yeah absolutely yeah so you're particularly in a 24 hour you're reliant on them because uh as much as there is a table further down past the support crew tents that you can grab stuff off, you never quite know what you're getting and what's going to be there. So you're relying on your support crew um, every so often to give what you need. And so that's their number one job. But I mean, they're also got a number of other important jobs, like I mentioned before, looking after you in terms of temperature. So if it's too hot, getting you ice, Yep. Um, if it's too cold or it's raining, getting you a jacket, making sure that your temperature's okay. Um, and then just that moral support yeah. as well. The pacing, letting you know where you're at yep. pacing-wise. So there's a number of things. Do you look back and have any regrets? Anything you think you'd do different or should have done different? I. It's interesting. I, I try not to have regrets and I actually take on Reese's approach to thinking about regrets okay. and disappointments. Yep. 
Uh, as you know, he was a very talented basketballer yep. and played uh, national level, played for NBL. And he received a number of invitations to go to National League teams, so yep. the Brisbane Bullets, Sydney, Tassie, yep. uh, and decided to stay in Melbourne and uh, decided to um, play his basketball out here. And, and often people say to him, look, you know, why didn't you take up those invitations? Yeah. And, you know, where could that have led you? And do you, you know, do you regret that? And, uh, you know, I, I really admire his approach and I, I take that on myself. He, he sort of says, look, I wouldn't be where I am now if I'd taken yeah. those. I wouldn't have a job that I love. I wouldn't have a, an amazing wife yeah. <laughs> and um, a fantastic son and family and community around me. So, um, yeah, I, I don't have regrets. Yeah, okay, that's, that's mm. fantastic. Um, yeah. And have you peaked yet? No. No, there's still a lot more in the tank. Uh, I think with 24 hours, I certainly haven't reached uh, the the PB that I'm seeking. Sure. And yep. uh, and I think in ultra running too, there is a number of new concept of races coming on the scene. Sure. And uh, one in particular, the last man standing events. Um, I'd really like to sort of try one of those. And yeah. And I think with the Trail Beyond, um, that was sort of initial step into the pool of um, giving back through my running and I certainly have some ideas and some things I'd like to pursue along that vein as well. Yeah, sure. That, that's great. And tell me, what what drives you the most? Is it is it the distance you're doing? Is it doing better times? Is it representing Australia? Do you just love the training? Like, what, what What's a... What's a driving factor for you? Lots of people ask that question. Lots of people ask, why do you run? And I, I've thought about it a lot and I I think it's a number of reasons. I can't put it down just to one. Um, firstly, I, I love running. Like if you took the races away, the competitions, the events, I would still run okay. because yep. each day that I run, I start the day uh, I've got a great mood. I've often thought about what the day entails and it's so it sets me up really nicely. I feel good. So I run because I love it and I love it the way it makes me feel. And secondly, I run because I love the challenge. I, sure. I love the challenge of pushing your limits. And I think a lot of us uh, put limits around ourselves and don't understand that there's so much more and I think ultra running teaches you that you think that you can only go so far but it's amazing when you're given the opportunity to push through that how you can and how there's so much more there so that's I mean ultra running that's one of the things that's taught me is that we often uh, don't think we can do things but we certainly can and we put caps on on what we can do and there's so much more that we can can achieve and then Thirdly, I think I do it because of the community and the relationships that I've built. I mean, endurance sport has given me a lot. I've put a lot in, but it's given me a lot back. I mean, I've, as we talked about, I've met Reese yeah, and yeah. a number of my close friends I've met through, uh, you know, triathlon or through running uh, and had some amazing experiences. I mean, Carolyn that I mentioned before, we ran every step together through those four Trail Beyond races, yep. and you know I'm 
also very uh, grateful for another friend of mine, Barb Eastwood, who has uh, travelled interstate twice to support me in, in events. And so those experiences and relationships you have together are, are very special. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So Donna, can you tell me, we've spoken a little bit about um, difficulties uh, during the race. Can you tell us what sort of mental strategies you use at times to, to drag you out of what must be... A little bit of despair? Yeah, sure. Look, I think this has evolved over time in terms of the strategies I I do use. It's almost become a bit of a toolbox of strategies that I've got and I find that sometimes one can work and I think, oh, I've got it. I've, I've found the solution and then I'll find in another race it doesn't particularly have... Um, the same effect and so I've found that what works best for me is to have a range of different things that I can draw on and I think the other important thing there is I've also learnt to try and use those in training so that I'm not just fronting up at a race and expecting in hour 12 for it to work so uh, I guess a range of things have developed I think the first thing is an acceptance that you're going to go through the highs and lows and that you're going to question yourself of why you're there. I think every event that I've been in, I've questioned, what the hell am I doing? Why did I sign up for this? And why did I pay? And why did I do what I'm doing? And I think to understand your why is really important and not make it up on the spot there and then. So to have a think about that and perhaps talk about it with family members or a coach to have a strong sense of what that is. Uh, So I I would uh, very much advocate um, that side of things. And then in in terms of what you can do when you're really kind of struggling and at a low, uh, look, I, I find that drawing on that why, but also one thing I've really found works for me is Imagining myself after the race and sitting in a chair after the race or sitting on a plane or sitting in the hotel room or sitting at home and drumming up and thinking and visualizing how I want to feel about that event. And I feel if I can really draw on that emotion of wanting to feel um, satisfied, rewarded, like I've smashed it. I, I feel if I can draw on that and imagine myself there, that that is that is really powerful. Um, and so that, you know, things work differently for different people, but yeah. that's a really strong one. Yep. So you're almost taking yourself out of the moment and putting yes. yourself ahead. Yeah. 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 And, and it's interesting. Um, certainly there's diff- – you can take yourself out of the moment and I have certainly do that a lot. It's really nice to forget about it all and to – uh, just start thinking about other things yeah. and take yourself yep. away. But then it's also really good to draw yourself in again and to focus on what's happening for your body. So I've really found that focusing on my breathing and it's it's almost a phase that I found I go through where I fight getting into that real low place. But then yep. if you can sit with it and and breathe and almost go into a trance-like yeah, state sure. and you can you can remain in that and and stop that fighting sense that's going on but just sit in it and be comfortable in that that situation yeah so, okay which is which tends to work well i find music yep. works 
particularly well for, yep. for periods of time. Uh, and visualisation, okay. particularly before the race, is, is really helpful in terms of visualising visualizing what can go wrong and, and what also right. can go you know what can go right but also what can yep. go wrong and how you might overcome those okay. particular issues so yep. yeah a range of things that yeah you, that you can draw on yeah okay some great strategies and we should talk a little bit about injury because that's what we do in our work um mm. injuries provided a bit of a battle hasn't it and particularly recently particularly with the foot where there's been a uh, a, a longer term foot problem that's significantly interrupted particularly Olby mm, I think wasn't mm, it the lead up to that mm. so again mentally you know finding positives like I, I get it but but sometimes and particularly with injury and this one is has dragged on it's been longer than any of us wanted it's been hard to diagnose it's been hard to treat it's just been one of those really difficult things it, it must have dragged you down at some times yeah for sure for sure I, I still remember so the the foot injury began uh about four weeks after the sydney 24 hour where i qualified or i got a qualifying distance and it it began about four weeks later and and that was roughly around the time where they were announcing the team to go to albie yeah. the australian team so uh everyone the team was announced and obviously on facebook and social media there were lots of congratulations and people were celebrating and all excited and starting to talk about preparing for alby and uh, i was in a moon boot and going yeah. to have an mri yeah. to see if i had a stress fracture so that was certainly a downer and uh that was difficult but I guess you just do what you have to do and, and you try and get it sorted out. And yeah, and I think too, you know, and, and it's, it's a really good examples for people. We go back to uh, 2006 was Hawaii and you had the arm mm. all the way through to, well, last year now, 2019 with the foot, which was a significant uh, impediment to your training. And if you, I suppose if you, if you approach it the right way, like you've still achieved really outstanding results at, those two events and and the others where you've been injured too just by dealing positively with with what's in front of you Mm. and i think i think two things factor in there i think firstly it's really drawing on the supports around you um with my foot injury i mean you were an amazing support for me you know i obviously have a physio background but it's really hard when you're wearing an athlete hat Absolutely. and a physio hat to be to think clearly and to plan clearly. So to have someone like yourself that I could talk to and brainstorm and plan about how to go about it was just gold. And and that really, I mean, you say how do you stay positive, but I think it's pulling in people around you that can help you and support you. And often people are happy to do that and uh if they know that you need need that support, so I think the people around me were just pivotal in in helping me get to to Albie. Yeah, sure, um, and it's interesting too because I remember one of the hardest points, certainly that that you conveyed to me was at a time with your foot when your kilometres were were of running were either nil in the boot or, or very low, and and people around you were doing who were who were in the same event are doing 
large distances and as much as people are really relevant around you sometimes we say this to people a lot they need to be irrelevant because Mm -hmm. what somebody else is doing that can drag you down like somebody else is uninjured doing enormous cage you're in a moon boot again that was a difficult time for you too wasn't it when you just couldn't do what other people around you were doing but ended up succeeding in the event in the event anyway Mm. yeah i found i had to put the blinkers on yeah and and social media yeah yep I really had to shut out what other people were doing and just have a plan and focus on what I needed to do. And in doing that, just look at all the factors and see if I could address each of those to pull together um, a reasonable training running to the event. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, and do you, just the last one on injury, do you have a, and again, recovery is a massive topic, but do you have a recovery strategy that you use in your peak weeks? Like, do you go to, you know, stretching or low-level activity or uh, ice or what? Is there anything that you go to to help your recovery? Sleep. Sleep. Yeah. Mm. Okay. And I find uh, really I need my sleep and I feel like – if I don't get a good eight hours at least, then that impacts on my ability to train. So ensuring that I get that sleep is my main priority and that's the biggest, the best thing I can find personally for me to recover. And I obviously do the other things in terms of, um, I find Pilates and, and the range of movement and stretching I do in Pilates and gym really helpful and... Uh, I find massage also really yeah. beneficial too. Yeah, okay, and it's interesting because certainly there's so much stuff with recovery and recovery centres and, and ice baths and, and, and ice chambers and all sorts of things, but but the research is pretty strong that sleep and, and nutrition should be our number one recovery strategies, but, you know, sleep's mm-hmm. a whole topic in it, in it or on its own, which we'll get to at some stage. Um, I want to sort of finish up talking a little bit about the professional you and, and your day-to-day job, which is, which is a physio, um, where you're an associate professor, senior research scientist at, at Monash Uni, um, and you've done a lot of things, particularly with, with back pain in particular, um, but you've also done a bit of, uh, based around the psychology, of runners which again is too big a topic to get into today but one thing that stuck in my mind with what you've done is the study where you were comparing the pain thresholds of ultra runners to uh, let's call it a control group or a Mm -hmm. normal population can you tell us just a little bit about what you found with that study Mm, sure so i collaborated with uh another research scientist Bernadette Fitzgibbon from MAPRC, which is the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre. And uh, we wanted to answer questions about ultra runners and their pain tolerance. So does their pain tolerance differ to controls or active active controls? And also to find out, well, if it does differ are there mental strategies that ultra runners um, use to allow them to to um, tolerate pain better? So we, as you mentioned, we did a case control study. We took twenty ultra runners and twenty controls, and we did what's called a cold presser test, where the each person has to put their hand in an icy cold container yeah. of water. 
and they need to keep it in for as long as they can with the maximum limit of three minutes. Sure. And then intermittently we are asking them to rate their pain on a scale of zero to ten. Yep. Uh, so I was a participant in that study and it, I found it really interesting to be a participant because uh, initially when I put my hand in the icy cold water, the instant reaction is to withdraw your hand because it is uncomfortable. Yep. And for the first five or ten seconds, I found it, you know, I really had to force myself to keep my hand in the water. But it, what I found was interesting was... I just told myself, okay, let's just see what happens. Let's relax into it. And the pain, again, didn't get any worse. Okay. And in yep. fact, it it settled a little bit and I felt more comfortable keeping my hand in. But in terms of what we found uh, in, in, in taking ultra runners versus controls was that the ultra runners were able to keep their hand in the water for longer periods and they also rated their pain lower at the intervals that we ask them so that's suggesting that the pain tolerance of ultra runners is is lower than active controls Uh, we also did a battery of questionnaires looking at um, their psychological profile and mental strategies that they use Um, and we found a three three interesting findings one was that uh, they had less anxiety around their pain okay Uh, The other thing we found was they had uh, more resilience around their pain. And and the other interesting thing was that uh, they, a negative thought or consequence, they were able to put a positive spin on it. So uh, an example is that if a person is shown perhaps a, a picture of a child in hospital who has severe burns, um, someone might look at that photo and say, oh my gosh, that poor child, those burns, that's, yep. that's just terrible and have this very negative emotion and beliefs around that. But then for someone who can put a positive spin on it, they might go, oh, that poor child in hospital with the burns. But look, they're in hospital, they're getting well cared yep. for. It looks like they're, they're getting the treatment they need. So um, that was a really interesting thing. And, and having obviously done some ultras and, and in that vein I could relate to each of those those points so it was interesting that the science was kind of meeting yeah. what I had experienced anecdotally yeah yeah, yeah. okay yeah I did I, I, I found that really fascinating um but let's finish with and, and you did mention it briefly before um and again I'm almost too scared to ask you've mentioned it once before and I didn't ask and that is this last man standing uh, event um can you tell us really briefly What's it about? You look worried, Anthony. I am. (laughs) So uh, last man standing events have popped up around the world over the last, uh, particularly over the last 12 months or so. Um, They've developed out of a last man standing race, which uh, is run in Tennessee. And it was, the concept was brought about by Lazarus Lake or uh, his name is Gary Cantrell and that might be familiar to some of the listeners because he um, is the race director for the Barkley Marathon. Oh, right, and okay. Some of you might have... I've seen it on Netflix, Netflix. I think. Yeah, There's a documentary yeah. about it. So he, um, he developed some really interesting concepts for races and this concept developed out of wanting to even the playing field in terms of running. So 
um, potentially someone winning an event but not being the fastest runner. So he set up this event and what it involves is running a 6.7 kilometre loop. Um, You end up back to where you started and you need to do that every hour on the hour. And so uh, everyone will start, run the 6.7K and some people will get back in 45 minutes and other people might get back in 58 yeah, minutes right. and so if you get back in your 44 your, 45 yeah. you've got extra 15 minutes rest time but then just before the hour a bell will be rung and you need to get up to the start line and if you're not there then you're out, you're out. and so everyone keeps going until the last man is standing right and do you know what sort of distances does the last man standing do or have they done? Has, I presume there's been some events already. Yeah, so uh, Gary's race in Tennessee has sort of almost been set up as um, almost, he calls it the world championship because all the other races or a number of the other races around the world offer a golden ticket. And so if you are the last man standing in your event, you get the golden ticket right. to go to his race okay. and then everyone Yep. sort of comes to his race and does yep. that. Now, from memory, I'm struggling a bit here, but uh, I believe they've gone for uh, three or 400 kilometres. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah, so well. long distances and for a number of days. Yeah, so it's 6.7 kilometres so that in 24 hours you will do 100 miles Okay. Um, in that time. So. Yeah. Okay. Just another crazy event on the agenda. Yeah. Look, I, I guess it's it's an interesting concept, and it it, uh, it intrigues me to know what it'd be like to to do an event like that. Because as much as it, a twenty four hour event is a little bit similar, it's not the same in terms yeah. of breaking um, and stopping for periods of time. And I've certainly spoken to, I was speaking to a lady the other day that's done a couple, and she said there's a whole different strategy around yeah, doing yeah, an event absolutely. like that yeah. yeah yeah well good luck thank We'd you we better get your foot right first yeah yeah oh it's on its way let's hope so thanks for joining us on the podcast today donna no thanks anthony it's been fantastic i appreciate you asking me no worries thank you Well, I hope you've enjoyed this first guest interview. I certainly have, and I found out a lot more about Donna that I didn't know, and I hope you found some useful information to help you with your running. 